he wouldn't take it laying down. He was a true Aussie battler, always litigating against the government. $20 million, his legal bills. I reckon it's more than that because there's all these actions overseas. We're not going to know what they cost. But having a barrister on your side for, you know, eight years in these cases, that's bloody expensive. Very expensive. You're listening to Tax Law with Harrison Dell. Hello and welcome to Tax Law with Harrison Dell from Cadena Legal. We explain the true crime of tax evasion in Australia and across the world. In today's episode, we go through the infamous Bywater investment saga, which centered around a fellow called Vander Gould. Bywater Investments was one of lots of companies in the group, but the name is just brandable. And that's what it was shown as in the media, Bywater Investments. If you look it up, you will see a lot of news articles going all the way back to about 2010. Vander Gould is the guy this is all about. He had a very public life in the media, in professional circles. If you look up his name, you'll still find his name across ATO submissions and professional group organizations that treated him as quite a senior member. He was also a very religious man. But the other side of the coin is a secret life of international tax evasion and complex offshore structures dating all the way back to the 1990s. Who was Vandergould? He's an interesting guy. I have to say, he's a very interesting guy. Vandergould was a former teacher in Chatswood. Now, former teacher because his second career was as an accountant, tax advisor. He also did some liquidation work. He had a lot of experience with complex international structures just from dealing with his clients. He had a lot of very wealthy clients. And he used this offshore knowledge to do some things which landed him in a lot of trouble. He had a really strong knowledge of Guernsey, Jersey, BVI, Samoa, Cayman Islands, not the most reputable first world economies to do business, but places with very low or zero tax rates. And it was during this kind of work, he got this knack for international structures where he rolled out a whole bunch of products for his clients and for himself. As I said before, he was super respected as an accountant, as a business leader in Australia. He was a chairman of a bunch of listed companies, CVC groups, CVC property funds, a whole bunch of medical technology groups as well. Massive donator to the Anglican Church. Millions of dollars went to the Anglican Church. He knew the bishops himself. He was like a boomer on Facebook in terms of posting evangelical quotes from the Bible. Um... Nothing against anyone being religious and following the Bible, but putting it on your Facebook wall, I just find a little cringe. His closeness to the Anglican church was very strong. He was the treasurer for a bunch of Anglican schools and also the Sydney Anglican Schools Corporation since the 1990s. And he was very evangelical, more so than the Anglican church usually is. And I can say that because I'm baptized Anglican. So... This guy was a step removed from what you'd normally see in an Anglican church. One of the interesting things he did, for instance, is he donated $160,000 to the son of an archbishop so he could go to Oxford and get his PhD. And that's all like, great, that's fine. The trouble is he did it from one of the offshore companies, which is a bit of a smoking gun. So we're just digressing from the tax stuff and what he did in his own life. But his parents were relatively wealthy as well. 
and they had a housekeeper for 14 years. This housekeeper had a mortgage on her home for $230,000 or so, and Vandergool's parents decided to pay it off for her as a gift for being so close to the family. She was like the daughter they never had, apparently. And a year later, Vander heard about this. He actually took this housekeeper to court and said his father didn't have capacity, blah, 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 argued it, appealed it, kept losing in the courts. But he was more than happy to use the legal system to vent his frustrations with something. He was very comfortable doing that. And this is where he gets into this long-winded litigation with the ATO and the AFP and, and, so, and others. The story of Van der Gould that we're interested in starts all the way back in 1991. In 1991, Mr. Gould wasn't in a good way. He was getting divorced from his first wife, Norell. And divorces generally cost a lot of money. And it took many, many years. He was much poorer and he was really at a crossroads of his life of what he really wanted to do. First thing he did is he remarried in 1993. Uh, his wife wasn't involved in this scheme at all, but she was also very deep connections to the Anglican Church in Sydney. But in 1993-1994, he set up two companies in the Cayman Islands, allegedly. MH Investments and JA Investments. Pretty innocuous names. These are the two companies that we're going to keep coming back to. They were right at the top of this group. At around that same time, he applied for a banking license in Western Samoa, the absolutely excellent banking jurisdiction we know Western Samoa to be. That's sarcasm, if you didn't pick that up. The banking application explicitly stated on it, which was obtained by the AFP, is that this company was designed to avoid the Australian controlled foreign company rules. That was the intention behind this structure. This company is called Huawang Bank Berhad. And Huawang Bank, very important as well, into a whole bunch of schemes that he did on behalf of his clients. But going back to the CFC rules, you need to know a little bit about them. So the CFC rules, the controlled foreign company rules, work to stop Australians having offshore companies to avoid tax. If I have an offshore company, I'm an Australian tax president, and I trigger these rules, the income of that foreign company is attributed back to me in Australia and I pay personal tax on it. So these rules are very complex and make up a large part of the complexity of Australians trying to set up international groups. Often legitimately, you still have to work through them. But it was around this time that the star of this show, Bywater Investments, was incorporated in the Bahamas. There are a whole bunch of other companies as well. Some were set up in Britain. So there was Chemical Trustee, Darren Brothers Property, Southgate Investment Fund. And the thing that's consistent with all these names is that they're completely innocuous. They have no connection. They're not called Gould Holdings. They're not called Tax Evasion Central Limited. Nothing like that. They're just made up names with no connection to reality. In total, there were more than 30 companies in Samoa, the UK, the Bahamas and the Caymans, but they were all ultimately controlled by MH Investments and JA Investments, those two companies in the Caymans that he set up first. All these companies, I'm going to refer to them as the Bywater companies. Now, we touched on the CFC rules. How do they actually avoid them? Because if you're an Australian owner of those companies, then they're going to be triggered. But the simple fact is he didn't own the companies. They were owned by another fellow. Peter Borges was a lawyer. He was native to Switzerland and he lived there for most of his life. 
These companies in the Bywater Group, especially Huawei Bank, were used by clients. So specifically, Huawei Bank ran a complicated superannuation scheme to help people access their super before they legally could. In the fact that you would set up a bank account with Huawei Bank and through a range of different ways, they would get the money back to you outside of superannuation. There were also like welfare funds that were set up. I don't think they actually did any welfare stuff, but you could invest in those and for somehow you get a tax deduction. It's not really clear how that all worked. This stuff wasn't central to the scheme. I have no doubt that a whole lot of Vandergool's clients were picked up by Project Wickenby, because that's how this was picked up as well, and had their, their affairs thrown through the audit machine. But Huawei Bank was central to the offerings to external clients, which was controlled um, by these two companies in the Cayman Islands. There was also a bunch of Vanuatu... There was also a bunch of insurance bond work in Vanuatu, which doesn't scream dodgy at all, clearly. And they also loan the money back to people to get around the superannuation rules. But the real money, the real money in this setup was allowing people to use these companies to trade on the ASX without paying any capital gains tax. So part of the reason these 30 foreign entities, 30 plus foreign entities existed was to trade shares on behalf of clients. There's a lot of discussion that sits outside of what we're going to talk about today, which is there are a whole bunch of advisable breaches of super of there are a whole bunch of advisable breaches of securities law. So they were making very large trades in some cases. There were hundreds of millions of dollars going at any one time. Oztrack at one point reported that there was one billion dollars of outflows to Vandergould related companies in two thousand and eight. I'm not clear if that's just in two thousand and eight or all the way up to two thousand and eight. Either way, it's a lot. This was all very blatant, this tax dodging, once it was picked up. But this wasn't what brought down Mr. Gould. What brought down Mr. Gould was, in 2004, the ATO started to catch on. Vander Gould went through the audit machine. He was grilled, no doubt very hard, because this doesn't look very good. And he made a sworn statement that MH Investments and JA Investments, the two Cayman companies, were not his. They had some client relations, but he did not control them. A sworn statement. And what I assume that means is that was done as a statutory declaration or that was done in response to an ATO formal notice. But the ATO caught on 2004. It wasn't until 2010 that the ATO started to issue tax assessments and they ignored Mr. Gould's sworn statement. They issued tax assessments for $40 million to five of these companies, which included Bywater Investments. In 2010... The Bywater companies appealed these to the federal court because, as we started, Vander Gould is not afraid of a legal stoush. At the same time, these companies were also fighting in their home jurisdiction, so in the Cayman Islands, in Britain, in Samoa, to stop the ATO getting access to corporate registers and private documents that they didn't want revealed in this audit and in this court action. Particularly, Samoa was very difficult for the ATO to deal with. And I remember speaking to one of the chief litigators at the ATO on this case, and he said that there were 27 different injunctions lodged just in Australia. There were dozens more overseas. And the legal bill for Vander Gould, after all this was said and done, was around $20 million. That's a lot of legal fees. 
And while this appeal was going on in the federal court, the ATO found another $100 million in cash in a British bank account. So that added an extra $30 million to their tax assessments. And it was also revealed only at this point that MH and JA Investments owned all of the Bywater companies. And that was through the ATO and the AFP's actions to get those informations from corporate registers in Jersey, in Samoa, in Cayman Islands, in Bahamas, even more exotic places as well. In September 2011, the Cayman authorities finally caved and produced documents to the ATO showing that JA Investments and MH Investments, that were owned by Peter Borges, were actually ultimately owned by Van der Gould. Because when you set up these companies, you have to say, here is the ultimate beneficial ownership. It can be kept private, obviously until governments start poking holes in it like this and really pushing for it. It stays relatively private. But there were documents with Mr. Gould's name on them that were shown to the ATO and AFP from the Cayman Island Corporate Authority. This was a smoking gun, clearly. Mr. Gould had an uphill battle, even from this point. He was challenging these documents being used. He was saying that the government got them illegally. And that was a lot of the cause for the injunctions. Because if you can't rely on those pieces of evidence, the cases kind of do fall over. It was the only strategy that he had, in my opinion. But this was devastating to his position and the sworn statements that he made in 2004 and along the whole way that he had no involvement with these companies. The Huawei Bank trial specifically started in September 2013. And Mr. Gould had maintained by saying that Peter Borges owned these companies and ran these companies. He had to be flown in from these companies. He had to be flown in from Switzerland to testify to the court. He landed on October 4th, 2013. He was told specifically by the lawyers for Huawei Bank and Bywater and all the other companies to not speak with Van der Gould. Van der Gould was not the client for these lawyers. Van der Gould was a, he was saying, a third party completely separated to those companies. But Peter Borges did talk to Van der Gould multiple times before the trial started. And then he started his four days being absolutely grilled on the stand by the ATO council, who was um, Queen's council, which is certainly not much fun, I can tell you that. So he started on the 10th. On the 14th of October, Gould spoke to Peter Borges on the phone and he said, I quote, no, 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 in the end, it'll be worth your while. Just trust me. It will be worth your while, but I mean, just the clearer, the crisper you are in answering, like, I don't know, and all that sort of stuff as well, end quote, is for the best, is what that was supposed to have said. The AFP had tapped Gould's phones, all four of them, and anybody that has more than two phones is, in my book, rather suspicious. Gould was also coaching Borges many, many times over Skype sessions where he would complain, and this was recorded, that he had so many company facts to memorize. He was sick. 30 companies is a lot. I can't remember 30 companies. Now, these, these companies all had massive smoking guns that were picked up through more than just ATO compliance. These were picked up in other contexts as well. So Vandergaard was using these foreign companies to make donations to 
the Anglican Church and related entities, and also to a whole bunch of individuals like the Archbishop's son, um, specific little colleges, that sort of thing. Now, it's very odd for a completely offshore group, no connection to Australia, to be making, I think it was around $2 million of donations to Australian churches and churchgoers in the northern suburbs of Sydney. Quite curious. It's at this point, after Peter Borges' testimony, that it starts the criminal side of the story. So once he was done, once he left the court, he went immediately to Sydney Airport. He got in a taxi and went. He couldn't go fast enough. So when he got in the taxi, he was arriving at the airport. Van der Gould and his business partner, John Lever, were being arrested in their homes. Peter Borges was trying to board his flight. He got through security and he was trapped in the departure lounge and detained there to be kept in Australia. So Van der Gould was arrested in his home in Chatswood on tax fraud charges. The tax fraud charges were later dropped, but the witness tampering charges were maintained. We are not sure what Peter Borges was charged with because there is a lot of international issues with charging a foreign national with criminal offences in Australia. And John Lever was arrested in his home in Point Piper in his pyjamas. Thank you for the papers for reporting that one. But John Lever was later... Um, John, John Lever later had all of his charges dropped. So whatever that means. But Van der Gould was quoted as blaming his arrest on troglodyte ideologies. And I just think that's an excellent soundbite. And Van der Gould maintains to this day that he was not involved in those companies... He, he personally hasn't faltered in his denying of this, but the courts found that clearly that he was. But while they dropped the tax fraud charges for Van der Gould, eventually, they maintained the charges for witness tampering. So police found a bunch of notes that Van der Gould told... Uh, police found a bunch of notes that Van der Gould provided to Peter Borges on what he needs to say. There were at least six different versions of these notes... And it's alleged that Van der Gould said to Peter Borges, you say what we want you to say and you'll be taken care of. That was the finding in the criminal matter before the judge. Leaving this all in the background for the time being, because the tax case was still moving ahead. They were still pushing in the federal court to try and get a better result. So in December 2014... Justice Perham released his judgment, and his judgment is absolutely iconic. He said, and I say this very carefully because Van der Gould sued Commissioner of Taxation for quoting this part of Justice Perham's judgment, which then Van der Gould lost, so now I feel more comfortable saying it. Justice Perham said, This is the worst case I have ever Justice Perham said, This is the worst case I have ever come across in my entire career. Full stop. What a quote. And Justice Perham retired very shortly after this case finished. He had a very long career in tax. And this being the worst case he's ever seen, I can understand why. As I mentioned, Van der Gould sued the Commissioner of Taxation, which he then lost the defamation suit. But it does lead to a separate court matter that is one of my favourite court titles ever, which is Commissioner of Taxation and the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation, because Chris Jordan, the Commissioner of Taxation, had to take an action personally against 
Andrew Mills, who was the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation at the time, so that he could obtain ATO documentation to defend himself from defamation char- a defamation suit. And there's very strict rules about when the ATO can release taxpayer documentation. And it was very poignant shortly after that is Chris Jordan was grilled in the Senate on a separate issue, but they wanted to see all these tax returns for you know Google and Facebook and whatever. And Chris Jordan said, no, I cannot do that. It's a breach of the law. And the Senate committee grilled him on it for hours. You can find this online. It's on YouTube still. They were grilling him, but he did the right thing, in my opinion. And he said, no, that's against the law. If you want a different law, then you've got to change it. And they didn't, so he didn't reveal it. But he had to try and get ATO information to defend himself. And I believe it was granted. I believe it was granted. There's a lot of weird rulings in that one about the role of Commissioner of Taxation compared to the role of Chris Jordan himself. Coming back to Mr. Gould, the finding of Justice Parham was appealed from the federal court to the full federal court in which they dismissed it, all the way to the high court in which they unanimously dismissed it. And they used the term, sorry, no, it was the Commissioner of Taxation after this case who used the term blatant tax evasion to describe this matter. Unfortunately for this matter, where this all fell over is when they found that Van der Gould controlled all these companies, they had what's called central management and control in Australia. If you control a company's high-level decisions from Australia, that's one of two requirements to become a tax resident. The other requirement is that you're carrying on a business. But this case did set a legal precedent in tax, which is that you controlling that company it having the central management and control in Australia, is also carrying on a business in Australia. Therefore, all of these companies in the Bywater Group were tax residents of Australia. Full stop. And I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to see the courts finally tackle the controlled foreign company rules. But they took the easy way out. And I can see why. The evidence does stack up in their favour. That was the civil matter, the tax matter. For Mr. Gould. But on the criminal matter, as I said, the tax fraud charges were dropped and he was only charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice is the name of the actual charge. This is because in 2016, Peter Borges flipped and he started informing on the on um, Van der Gould and giving the AFP information on how he was coached. So it was only in 2019 that Van der Gould was found guilty and sentenced to three years and four months, which is a relatively light sentence compared to some of the matters we've considered before, where people got eight to 14 years. But Van der Gould is a relatively old man these days, and that's one of the factors that they use when they sentence people is, well, if you've only got 10 years left, is it worth taking, you know, sentencing for 15? No, it's, it's a balance in the system. But what do we take away from this case? The Bywater Company saga, the main takeaway is that foreign companies are extremely dangerous. So there are tax lawyers like myself that do a lot of international tax work and we know where the lines are. And I suspect that Van der Gould knew where the lines were and crossed them anyway because he thought he could get away with it. In the 90s, you could get away with this sort of nonsense. These days, you can't. You need to be very careful having any international operations, particularly in tax havens. I do a lot of work with crypto-based companies, whether they be DAOs or projects, 
And they are restricted to pretty much only use these tax haven style jurisdictions, not for tax purposes, but more for securities law purposes. But it means that they have an enormous tax risk that they need to deal with. Otherwise, they can end up looking like they're doing things like Van der Gould did, even though that's really the only places that they can do business. The other takeaway is if someone offers you a superannuation scheme of come use my Samoan bank and I will get the money out of your super fund so you can invest it yourself, then something's wrong. Something is very wrong. If anything is too good to be true in tax, it almost certainly is. Unless you hear it from someone reputable like me, or you can fully understand why it's a gift. There are some gifts in the tax law, but they are certainly not gifts where you can set up an offshore company or an offshore trust and not have to worry about it. The third one, and we kind of touched on this in Plutus Payroll in a previous episode, is that straw directors or directors that are fully controlled by another person are not really an effective way to protect you, you from tax risk. Often when you set up these foreign companies, they have a requirement that they have a local director. And the local director is often an agent that set up the company or related to them, and you pay them an annual fee. That does not mean that the central management and control of that company is overseas. If you are the one instructing them what to do, they act under your hand, whether they're bank signatories or just on the company or whatever. You've got a very big risk that this is an Australian resident company based on the outcome of this case. And the ATO updated their tax rulings to reflect this as well. Thank you for listening to episode three of Tax Law. If you want more, please check out the website for articles, transcripts, and more at www.cadenalegal.com.au. Not only that, but you can also follow me on TikTok for more edgy tax content. We plan to launch new episodes every week, so stay tuned.